Hello and welcome to UX Like Us, the podcast for user experience designers, researchers, strategists, and superheroes. <laughs> I'm your user experience superhero, Roman Burcott. Joining me as always is Larry King. Larry, how are you? I am doing fantabulous. Thank you very much for asking. <laughs> fantabulous, huh? Are you keeping warm out there? Uh, it's actually really, really cold here on the East Coast. Uh, it was windy all day. I've got shutters blowing off of my house, and <laughs> it's uh, going to be 11, 11 degrees Fahrenheit when I walk on a plane tomorrow morning. Yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty nice out here. Oh, snap. <laughs> yeah. So last week, we attended UX Camp DC, um, where we had the privilege of hearing from some of the best and brightest in the UX field, including some bold new voices. Uh, Larry, I wanted to hear from you. Uh, did you have any favorite sessions? Uh, so I went to a bunch of sessions. Um, my favorite session, it's a hard one. Um, they were all, all, honestly, looking at the board, because you know if you haven't been to a bar camp before, um, there it's one of those things where it's like everybody shows up and anybody gets a chance to present if they want, and they fill out a little piece of paper saying what they want to present on and blah, blah, blah. And then they take all those things and they put it on a board and... Um, uh, allow people, you know, then they, they, they make the schedule as you show up basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, you know, just looking over the board at the beginning of the day, looking at all the, the, the different, um, the different things to, 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 to attend because they had like four different, uh, rooms you can go to. And so they had basically four different presentations going on at any one time. And so it was really hard to decide because there was a lot of really, really good, um, really, really good, uh, topics that I wanted to attend and I couldn't attend all of them. Um, mm -hmm. But a couple of ones that I did attend. So one of them was, um, you know, Dana Chisnell. Uh, she's, you know, uh, works on the U.S. digital services. And uh -huh. her big thing is all ever since they, if you don't know anything about Dana, she ever since the, uh, the election of 2000, where, um, uh, George Bush beat out Al Gore with a Supreme court decision. Um, ever since that election, she has been decided that she was going to be heavily involved in, you know, elections and how voting happens and the usability of elections and whether people's real intentions in voting is actually being translated mm -hmm. into the vote that they do themselves because um, of some things that she sort of revealed in the talk that she did. Um, and her talk was, really centered around this concept of really small design decisions can often make a really big difference in the world and have unintended consequences that you don't even realize. Right. No doubt. And so her big thing was the, you know, the 2000 election. And one of the reasons the 2000 election was such a debacle was because of something that you and me and any designer would probably be guilty of doing at some point. And it was making the logo bigger. Close. <laughs> close. It was making the typeface bigger, right? So oh, nice. if you think about the, the County in which um, all of a lot of the, the problems that were happening was Broward County, Miami Dade County, um, large populations of people with, you know, who are, you know, of, of older age and therefore have problems seeing type that is too small. And so when they designed the ballots, they made the type 
bigger because they thought, oh, we need to have our, our constituents or people that have, you know, are, are, are older and need to mm-hmm. have bigger types so that they can. And the intention being making it more likely that the person who is voting is voting for the people person that they intend, right? By making the type bigger and easier to read. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If you had started the story right there, I'd be like, oh, this is a great story about how somebody took accessibility into account and saved elections by making the type bigger. Problem is that by making the type bigger, there were some unintended consequences of the alignment of the person's name and the place where you actually poke the piece of paper out in the actual ballot. And therefore there was a whole bunch of ballots in those counties that were like, did they vote for this person or that person? And they had the hanging chads and they had to hold them up with lights and that whole mess back in, you know, early two thousands. And it eventually came out into the, um, you know, the Supreme court saying, you know, had, basically saying nope you got to stop the the count and george bush is the you know winner and so the unintended consequences of that where you know if depending on your political leaning you could you know reasonably say that well because of that al gore lost and therefore george bush won therefore we got into two wars one in afghanistan one in iraq therefore we had a consolidation of of of, of presidential power we had a surveillance state that happened and you could you know, if you took enough steps into that direction, you could say that, you know, there was, you know, we, we, that we're on a worse um, trajectory for climate change and, and all these things because, <laughs> because somebody made the type bigger on a ballot. Now you could, you know, you could, you could make arguments either way about whether, you know, if it really had those big changes, but you can't really argue that it's like, Hey, if this wouldn't have happened that, you know, it had a different outcome in the elections, some very different things would have happened in the world, right? There would have been some different decisions um pretty significant big decisions that happen in the world um if if somebody else would have been elected in 2000 so well even even setting the butterfly effect aside which i mean it's it's a fascinating uh conclusion to to that whole kind of story there um but even setting that aside i think we could all uh, agree as user experience professionals that we want accuracy and ballots we want people to be able to use the product that we design uh, effectively and and without errors like regardless of your political standing like what happened was a disaster for the people that arguably somebody was trying to serve well yeah absolutely and i think you know the the supreme court stepping in is just like crap we just we got somebody has to make a decision at this point and the information that we have is inconclusive at best because of the design decisions that were made right and so you know they you know they they just had to make a decision you know there i'm sure there was all kinds of crazy politics involved as well but at the same time somebody had to make a decision and they're the only place you know people that could honestly do it at the time but yeah and you know the, the interesting thing about that was like even though the intention of, hey, we make the type bigger to make it easier for you know the people that we think are our target audience to do, you still have to do some testing in that. And you have mm-hmm. to do testing. And that was one of the conclusions that came out of it. The nice thing about these, um, these bar camp uh, presentations is, you know, a lot of people that come in here do these presentations are presentations that aren't done or not ready for, for prime time. Mm-hmm. And so 
Dana had these three scenarios where there was, you know, these small design decisions that made these huge impacts. And um, that's all she had was the three scenarios. She didn't have the actual conclusions for the for oh, presentation. Right yet. So she was like crowdsourcing her conclusions from us at the time. And so, you know, we were sort of brainstorming, well, you know, what, what, what does this, this scenario of, Hey, well-intentioned designer making the typeface bigger but having unintended consequences you know what can we learn from this situation yeah and you know one of the things that you know people came up was like well you know what you really got to test this stuff um you can make assumptions about hey making the text bigger is going to help people out but you never know what the in- unintended consequences are going to be unless you actually test it and you test it in the context of where people are actually going to use it. And you test it in the actual physical ballot thing that this weird paper ballot like fits into this metal thing that people use to actually do their voting. And you have to do it with different (laughs) types of people in different, you know, situations where that, 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 that makes sense for the, you know, for the scenarios that you're doing and all these things, it just comes down to like, you know what? You can make a lot of assumptions about how this is actually going to play in the real world, but until you actually test it in those real world situations, you don't actually know. And once you don't do that and the cat is out of the bag and the thing has already happened in the case of, you know, the 2000 election, there's no way to reel that back. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's, it's the, the, the damage is done and there's nothing you can do about it. So, the, I mean, I think one of the biggest moral of the stories was test. It's a hilarious scenario too, because I know we've all experienced that, not necessarily on uh, voting machines, but on crappy ATMs where it has oh, like the options are on the screen, but the uh, the ring around the screen is so thick that it's hard to tell the correct alignment. So it's like, does this button go to this option or the other option? <laughs> Or it was it was uh, it was designed like if only if you're looking straight at the screen. <laughs> exactly. But yeah. but ATM screens, you're like standing up here, and like the screen is like you know right. a good foot below your face level, and so you have this different <laughs> parallax angle to the button versus what's on the screen. It's uh-huh. like, what am I supposed to do? And so like the really good crappy ATMs will have like the extra line of plastic connecting the button to the <laughs> the spot on the screen, so you can tell like which button you're supposed to be pushing. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's all they had to do to fix those election machines. <laughs> <laughs> if only somebody would have taken some tape and pointed <laughs> right. it from the name to the to the Chad. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Well, that sounds like an amazing talk. It better have been uh, an amazing uh, conversation, seeing as how you you chose that over my session. (laughs) (laughs) I did indeed. So, Roman, tell us about uh, the talk that you gave at uh, at UXCAM DC. Sure. So I was uh, talking about common approaches to decision making. Um, So you're probably, obviously, you're familiar with voting, uh, which is... Uh, particularly common in uh, like a design workshop uh, setting. There's also decision making by consensus where like we all have to agree and, you know, we can't do anything until we all agree. Um, Then there's, you know, there's autocratic decision making where just, you know, whoever's in charge just says, okay, this is what we're doing. Um, And then I went into more detail on decision-making with consents. So um, this is a new concept, which is actually an old concept. 
the Dutch Quakers use this uh, form of governance, uh, where basically it, it, it's kind of the, the opposite of, of voting. Um, basically, people just state what their objections are. And if you can handle those objections, then we basically all agree. Um, and so I think particularly in a design setting, it could be a useful additional tool for, for making decisions. Cool. So have you used this uh, decision-making framework um, in, in, in real-life practice? We haven't done it uh, in studio yet. Um, we've done it via, you know, Slack a couple of times as far as uh, trying to figure out, uh, you know, between a couple of different uh, design options. Uh, we use it very commonly for choosing between lunch options. Um, <laughs> yeah, so uh, one of the good examples and, uh, you know, I had the each group uh, try to work out where are we going to go for lunch? And uh, Ryan has a peanut allergy. And so, um, you know, basically as a really great example of uh, deciding by consent, he says, hey, I'll eat whatever, but I'm allergic to peanuts. Like, <laughs> you know, we just anything but that. That's always his answer to where are we going for lunch. <laughs> That's true. He's like, why do you guys always make me decide where we're going to go? Like, because you're the one who will die. <laughs> So yeah, the, the, the workshop was fun. And like you said, with it being a bar camp, it was cool to uh, talk to the participants and talk about like, okay, so how could we turn this, um, you know, somewhat old fashioned decision-making framework into a design tool that would be, um, you know, easy to employ in like a workshop setting. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. So it was a, a ton of fun and a really a neat experience. I'm eager to, uh, to speak some more. So I had another uh, talk that I thought was um, a, a really good one, one that I, I think I have some actionable things I can take to my own practice um, from. And it was a talk and, uh, by um, Kim Beeler. So she, Kim Beeler is, uh, runs the UX uh, practice at a cybersecurity um, startup called Expel mm -hmm. here in the DC area. And she also happens to be um, a, a I, I, I used to report to Kim um, uh, when I worked at Mandian and FireEye. Mm -hmm. And she is um, in an interesting situation where she has um, a very small UX practice, right? Being a startup and all, she has um, herself, she was like the, the original, um, I think she was like employee number six at this, at this place. Mm -hmm. And, um, which tells you a little bit about, you know, how much they think UX is important at this uh, particular company. Mm, good point. Um, but she, um, but now she has, you know, two other direct reports. Um, somebody who's a little more senior and somebody who's extremely junior, mm -hmm. um, uh, like right out of college, uh, junior. So she talked about, so she talked about career paths for small UX design teams. Right. So that's the, the you know, that's always a, been, you know, a big, you know, thing for, you know, UX, um, in general, it's like, you know, what's the career path that you have for any of, mm -hmm. you know, the people that you have on your team. It's like, are you going to be a, you know, a, you specialize in practicing? Are you going to specialize in the management track and people management and things like that? And it's harder for people in very small design teams. Cause it's like, well, what is the career path? Right. It's like, mm -hmm. well, your career path is either we grow enough and we can hire more people so you can have, <laughs> so you can like, you know, uh, own more stuff or you, we 
stay the same and eventually your boss leaves and you take their job, right? So or there is another way. Um, basically, we just hire you a new boss. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it was interesting because she told the story about how she got into people management. You know, she was, uh, she was interviewing for a UX job. And the day that she was interviewing, uh, she was interviewing, you know, with a, a couple of people and the person she was interviewing told her, it's like, well, the people person who's running UX is actually quitting. And so she started, <laughs> she started her job on the same day that was the last day of the person uh, who was running UX. There's job was over. And so when she was hired, when she was like interviewing, she's like, well, do you want to interview for his job? So she ended up being hired in as the UX manager, UX manager to the company um, just because she seemed like she look like a manager that's fantastic <laughs> and so she'd never done that before she'd like run her own business for a while but she hadn't really been a people manager and so she was like talking about how this was all brand new to her and she's never done this before and she was sort of out of realment she had to figure out how she went and i she hired me about a year later a year after that mm -hmm. um fascinating thing is she was like the best people manager that I'd ever had in my entire career up to that point. Wow. And she'd only been doing it for like a year. And so she's talking about career paths and all this stuff in, in, in her presentation. But the, the, my big takeaway was, you know, to be a really good people manager, it's, it's, it's not rocket science. You just honestly have to give a crap. Yeah. It's like 90% of being a good people manager is like, giving enough of a crap that you like, how, how can I make this experience good for the people like working under me and not trying to be, you know, uh, a micromanager, not trying to, you know, you know, you know, I don't know, just, it, it really comes down to like 90% just giving a shit. Honestly, like a manager who is just willing to like read a book, like management for dummies, assuming such a title exists, like even just doing that, would be so much beyond what I think a lot of us are guilty of doing. Like we just, we move into a role and just go, Oh, I, you know, I guess I'll manage however is expedient or comfortable for me or the ways I've seen somebody else do it. Never actually just taking that moment to think about it, Like what kind of manager am I going to be? Right. I think like people don't, uh... I think a lot of people that get into people management roles are put there because that is just the, that's the only way up the ladder there is. Mm -hmm. Right. And so that's just the thing you have to do to, to, to go up higher. And um, I think a lot of people either aren't even inclined to do people management or just don't have the skills or the desire to do so at all. Right. And, but that, if that's the only way up, they're going to do that anyway, and then they're going to do it poorly. And, um, and then, you know, that's, you know, that's 90% of our, our companies are the, are the people involved in it. And you really have to pay attention to the people side of things. Otherwise, you know, that's like a, a, a keystone of making a great company is, is the people that you have there and, and, and giving them meaningful work and giving them work that, that makes them, um, feel like they have ownership and, and, and are, contributing to something greater, a, a greater good. Um, but you know, not everybody who's in people management have that point of view. Right. I think mm -hmm. they tend to, uh, I, and I've, I've seen this a lot too, is like you, you manage to numbers 
right? And so instead right. of actually managing, it's like, well, we'll just set up a bunch of KPIs. And then if you made the KPIs, then you did good. If you didn't meet the KPIs, you did bad. And then I don't have to actually manage because I can just look <laughs> at numbers, right? And I think it's the wrong way to do it because, you know, the, you know, managing to numbers is, is often done because it's easy to measure a thing rather than this is actually meaningful to what the company is trying to accomplish and it is meaningful to you know actually delivering value to customers and so um i don't know kind of off on tangent there but i th i thought of the you know kim's talk on career paths um was an interesting one there was one thing that came up um during that which was i thought was a was an interesting point it was uh, actually Dana Chisnell was, was in that talk as well in the audience. And she was talking about how they do people management in their small um, agency. And what mm -hmm. they do is fascinating. They, they, what they do is like, they look out a year from now and they say, okay, write a letter about, you know, your, from yourself a year from now and talk about the things that you accomplished. Um, and what, what, what things that you, um, you, you know, what value provided the company, what, what, what things you accomplished, what, um, uh, thing you became an expert on mm -hmm. and you write that, you know, write that out for, from a year from now. And then what they do is they take that letter and they turn it into, you know, objectives and key results for the year. It's like, okay, so in this quarter, you're going to do X, Y, and Z so that you can, and, and here's where, how we're going to measure it. And it's all based upon this thing that they, you know, predicted from a year from now that the, you know, the value they're going to be providing to the company. And so I thought it was a really interesting way to, to, to set up goals and, and objectives for direct reports um, based upon this scenario a year in the future where they, you know, we predicted all this value that we've created for the company. And so I thought that was really, really cool. That sounds really interesting. It seems like that uh, move into UX leadership was a, a bit of a theme there at uh, UX Camp DC. And I know there were more than one session on the topic. And um, I don't want to go off on a total rant on this. And maybe it'll, well, I'm sure it'll come up <laughs> in a future episode. But, you know, one of the things that was being discussed was this notion of, you know, like, oh, there's, there's leaders and then there's managers and leaders do one thing and managers do another thing. And it seemed like there was just a common acceptance that those were, were different, um, different occupations, right? Leader versus manager. And um, I didn't want to bog down the conversation, but I, I super disagree with that. Like, I think this idea that you can be a good leader, but not know how to manage people that's just, that's horse feathers. And this idea that you could be some kind of great manager, but not be able to uh, inspire people to follow you, to not be a leader, I think that's also just craziness. And I think it's time that we set aside this notion that, you know, leadership and management are, are separate disciplines. They might be um, different activities and, and different goals, but absolutely to be a great one of either you have to be able to do both. Wow. Yeah. I didn't, um, I didn't get that, uh, that, 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 uh, dichotomy, um, from what I heard at the, at the, at the conference, but I agree with you. I mean, I would have to, I would, I would love to have somebody talk from the other side of that saying, Oh no. Yeah. Leadership and management are two different things and you can be two different, you know, you can be a leader or a manager and not necessarily both. Um, but I would tend to agree with you. It was like, how can you manage if you're not actually leading? Right. Because like part of, you know, being in management is, is, 
you know, leading by example and trying to like, you know, live the, live the culture of the team that you're trying to create so that others will, you know, look at you and follow along in creating that culture. Right. And so I don't see how you can separate the two. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I love that, you know, we're having these conversations in the field more, I think, as we're maturing, there's a lot more discussion go going around about your career path and your progression and how do you become a, a, a grown up <laughs> UX practitioner. And um, that seemed to be a recurring theme there. And, and it's, it's exciting to, to hear people talking about it. Yeah, I mean, I think as the UX field continues to grow and mature, you see um, more of these discussions about how you good user experience can't even be delivered unless you have a good organization that is organized around that particular, you know, organized around delivering experiences. Uh, I think one of the most telling things that somebody said to me one time was like, your, I, I think I actually came from Jared's bull, but your organization <laughs> is uniquely designed to get the results that it is giving right now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Exactly right it's like or it's a uniquely optimized to give the results that it is based upon you know the organization of it right now right and so everything about you know a company and what it can actually accomplish is all based upon how it's organized and how and and and, and you know what things are given importance and all that and I think it's a really interesting you know way of looking at things and I it's interesting for me that as the UX you know, UX you know, industry grows and matures. We're thinking about it on the level of, you know, organization and the org the design of the organization from the very top down in a, in a company and that it's, it's, it's necessarily to think about it at that level, to be able to deliver truly great experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I thought that was a, a really cool theme of the day. Did you uh, pick up on other themes or uh, particular talks that jumped out at you? Um, so the interesting, the, the, the last talk I went to was from, I don't remember the guy's name, Jeff pass, Jeff pass. Thank you. <laughs> Jeff pass. Um, he did an interesting, um, uh, so it was the last, um, it was the last presentation that I saw of the day. And I like, it was nice because it was like very, very foofy type of uh, presentation, which is a good one to end on, you know, mm -hmm. after a long day of sort of, you know, more concrete, heady type of things. But his was exploring the, you know, where the soul of a certain thing comes from. Like, so he explored things like whiskey and guitars and, you know, the soul of a movie. And he basically, um, in, in many cases, tried to like interview or at least get a response from the creator itself or somebody associated with the creator to, you know, get at the essence of, you know, what is the soul of the movie of star Wars? Where does his soul come from? Mm. And he had like some, some, some parameters of, you know, what that means. And it can't be anything that was like, you know, not a part of the thing itself. Um, and, and some other things, but like, for instance, if you taught, you know, there was, he didn't get to, interview um uh, george lucas but you know george lucas is on record saying at some point that you know the soul of star wars was the miniatures mm -hmm. of the the movie that that really created the worlds and that's where the soul of the, the movie came from um he got somebody from the company um bushmills who makes irish whiskey okay to to, to make comments about 
you know, where the soul of the whiskey comes from. And they were like, well, it comes from the barley and the, you know, blah, blah, blah. And apparently there's like some other instances where he, he said that the, um, the, the soul of the whiskey came from something else too. So honestly, I think it comes from the barrel, but that's my opinion. Um, <laughs> but he also, uh, and then there was like the, the one thing that came up, which is the reason I went to this talk in the first place, because he had teased it earlier in the day that, Oh, and we'll talk about, you know, where the soul of a guitar comes from. And of course, you know, being somebody who has been a guitar player for many, many years and now is starting to make them, I was like, oh yeah, I know where the soul of a guitar comes from. It comes from the fingers of the person playing it. Um, and he was like, no, that's outside of my uh, rules for what a, where the soul can come from. So um, He had a quote from an artist who said that the soul of the guitar comes from all of the experiences of that guitar and, you know the abuse it's taken, the songs that's been played on it, all the strings that have been broken, like any of the dings and nicks. And, and I don't know if you've ever seen, um, uh, uh, Willie Nelson has this old Martin guitar. That's like, is please played it so much. There's actually a hole in the, um, right underneath where the strings are because he's played it with a pick so much. And he's like, you know, basically worn away the wood Wow, all the way through. And there's like a hole in it and he still plays that guitar. Right. And so the soul of that guitar would be like, all that time, like strumming on it and removing wood and changing the tone based upon all the abuse that a particular guitar has taken. So, um, I don't know how all that was supposed to relate to UX so much, but, uh, it was a really, uh, fascinating talk anyway. <laughs> so also if you were at UX camp DC, you might've seen our, uh, UX, uh, like us purple stickers. Oh, yeah. Um, I realized that we, we put those out there and, um, some people might've picked it up and not actually known that <laughs> UX like us is a podcast. Cause it didn't really say so on there. <laughs> so anyway, if you picked up a sticker at, uh, at UX camp DC and it was purple and it said UX like us, that was the podcast that we're Oh, you probably already knew because you're listening now. Um, but anyway, <laughs> you managed to figure it out. Congratulations. <laughs> and if you did, please subscribe and review our podcast because um, uh, we would like us more people to hear about this. And we, um, I think we had a good time um, hanging out with all the UX people there. And hopefully uh, you can subscribe and tell all your friends about the, the show. That would be rad. You know where I find uh, some pretty cool recommendations? Where's that? On Product Hunt. Product Hunt? Yeah, it's a site. I I kind of assume everybody goes there, but maybe I'm more of a product geek than, than others. But yeah, Product Hunt, um, it, it kind of reminds me of the old uh, Dig website, but this is like very product oriented. So it can be software, it can be an app, um, it can even be, you know, devices and transportation gizmos, whatever. But um, I, I've recently, I've seen some... Um, some podcasts recommended on there. So uh, yeah, if people were looking to help uh, get the show, uh, the attention of the UX community, that might be a cool place to, to mention us. Cool. So yeah, put us on product hunt and then we could, because, because it's on product hunt, then we could make a Wikipedia page because then product hunt would be like a, a secondary source and then you could actually make a wiki page and then we could be on Wikipedia and then we'd be legit. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Stuff designers love. Well, let's see. This week, uh, Stuff Designers Love, it was a conversation that broke out after uh, UX Camp DC. I saw it come through on Twitter, 
And uh, basically, it's a it's a thread of tweets that I'll link to in the show notes. Uh, but it comes from Beth Dean, which is at Beth Dean, right? Um, where she says, uh, uh, and, and here's the tweet, I 100 agree. Let's talk about what product design is because both UX people and folks calling themselves product designers don't always know. So I'll link to that, uh, to that uh, Twitter thread um, in the show notes. But basically the whole thread is just fantastic people really chiming in and um adding a lot of value to that discussion um related to what we were talking about last week uh you know for in preparation for this episode um i was watching the uh notorious big biopic on vh1 because i'm an old person but (laughs) also because uh i wanted to be ready for the uh, product management UX schism that you uh, set off last week, bro. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I still have a job, by the way. So that means my boss has not listened to that episode. So. <laughs> he has not listened or maybe he listened and, and nodded thoughtfully. No, I'm pretty sure he just <laughs> doesn't have the time. Um, I would agree with that. <laughs> But yeah, when you get a second, uh, click, like I said, uh, at Beth Dean, either uh, you can look her up directly or uh, you can click on the show notes. There's a link to the Twitter thread, but she had a, a lot of great value to add. I've got a hypothesis that will take a few more years to play out. Companies that front load in the product process instead will be more successful than those who use design as an execution step. This is why we have a whole cottage industry of speakers, books, workshops, telling in-house designers to break organizational ranks and get involved in the business. So yeah, Twitter, Twitter thread, uh, design Twitter is awesome. Um, and, uh, the thoughts of Beth Dean are awesome. So that's something that a designer loves. Yeah. At the event, we were joking around saying that we'd pay good money to see a, a conference that has, uh, Jared Spool and Alan Cooper on stage, just having like a rap battle. Oh, that'd be awesome, wouldn't it? Because <laughs> you know they would deliver. <laughs> yeah, somebody has to set that up. Crap, that'd be awesome. <laughs> well, when we have our first UX Like Us uh, conference, that'll that'll be the goal, is to have a rap that- battle. <laughs> well, don't forget to uh, like and subscribe to the podcast. Um, and, of course, positive reviews help us tremendously. Um, but, uh, again, like Larry was saying, if, uh, if you like the show, um, maybe consider... Uh, sharing upvoting i forget what the action is on product hunt basically anything you can do to uh help people find the show is much appreciated yeah and as always you can connect with us on twitter tweet um me that's larry i'm at la king that's minus the s because the one with the s is the hockey team <laughs> that is from la and that is not me i can tell like hockey teams hockey season starting to heat up because i start getting a lot of at replies where people forget to put the s on the end of the <laughs> la king and and then i of course get included in those uh, conversations uh but so i'm la king and uh, Roman is at Stuperman. I st- do we ever get a story about Stuperman? <laughs> why that is your Twitter handle? Um, nothing much more specific than what I already said, which was there was a lot of Johnny Walker being poured uh, back when Twitter came Oh, out. right. Yeah. <laughs> Johnny Walker. Got it. <laughs>